and welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Corinne. And I'm Tasia. And today we are talking about book four in the Raven Cycle, The Raven King, specifically chapters one through 32. And we are joined today by our returning guest, our friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi. I'm so excited. We're so happy to have you back. Yeah, we really are. I can't believe it's taken this long. I know. Melissa was our very first guest on like our second ever episode when we talked about Carrie on Wayward Son. And we are thrilled to have her back today because when we're not talking about that series with each other, we're talking about this one with each other. So this is perfect. And coincidentally, on purpose, but not on purpose, like when we had our Carrie on Wayward Son episode, we all had the same shirt that we wore at that time. And now we are doing it again today <laughs> with the same shirt. So we will post it on our socials. I love it I know, so much. Next time I come on, we're going to have to shop. I know. Well, yeah. I'll pick a book because I, I think, think this is our last, last of the shirt. matching merch. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> shucks. It, I hate buying bookish merch. It's I can't stand it. Actually, I literally, from the site that we bought these shirts that we're wearing, which say Paris Lynch 2020, making dreams come true for Henrietta, Virginia. I was on the same site today and I may or may not have purchased Aglumby sweatpants and also a shirt that says I'm being perfectly fucking civil. So, oh, I love that. I love that. I'm so so jealous. Yeah. So that's the thing I did today. Melissa, before we dive in, remind our listeners, if they have not listened to that episode, what your other podcasts are so they can uh, check you out. Oh, yes. Okay. So you can find me co-hosting the Wild Pretty Things podcast. We just recently, as everyone did, did our top you know, 2020s TV and movies. So there's a couple episodes on that over there. Uh, we haven't gotten into 2021 content yet, but that will be happening shortly. And I'm also about midway through a Mad Men rewatch. Well, I say rewatch, but I haven't seen Mad Men. So I'm watching Mad Men for the first time with two friends who have seen the show. So we're doing that over at Still Great Bob. Excellent. Well, thank you again for loaning yourself out to us here today. We really appreciate it. Before we dive into the book, we always like to talk about anything else that we're really into this week, books, TV, etc. So, Tasia, what are you obsessing over this week? I finally have something to say in this portion, uh, which is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I started finally watching WandaVision. I had been kind of resistant to it because I'm really not that interested in Scarlet Witch or in particular, well, I like Scarlet Witch, but Vision, I think is boring. And I also don't, for for reasons I won't get into right now, I don't like Paul Bettany and I don't want to support him. So yeah, I started watching WandaVision finally because I was up like in the middle of the night with a panic attack and I was just trying to distract myself. And I don't know, I just put on some something that I didn't think I would care about. So I put on WandaVision and I ended up actually getting kind of sucked into it and I'm all in now. The mystery that's happening at the core of it is is one that is really interesting. I thought the premise was kind of meh, but once I started watching it, it's uh it's yeah. good. Yeah, cool. Melissa, how about you? Melissa. Yeah, so outside of the homework for so I've read the Raven Cycle before. Um, but whenever I was asked to be on this episode, I reread all four books, of course, naturally, instead of just 
the one that was my actual homework. So I've been doing that for a few weeks. Um, I also, this is like a shameless plug for another friend, you know, friend of the pod podcast. I just finally found time to start Mansfield Park with Jesse and Annie at the Daily Nightly. So I've been doing that as well. So basically, like always, I have been doing podcast homework. <laughs> Sounds about right. But it's like the best kind of homework. I still procrastinate, though, even if I like it. Yes, because I get to read a book and then listen to my friends talk about it or like sometimes get to talk about it with my friends, which is just the best. It's really everything we could ever want. A good incentive for me to read Jane Austen because I get really lost. Like I find myself like I have to read those books out loud to myself so that I can like follow the language. So that's like a fun experiment of me in my house. Like that's <laughs> my cat, but yeah. <laughs> it's perfect to the way they do though. They do five chapter increments, which is really just the perfect amount of uh, time to focus on. Like it's enough for my brain to like tune into that more antiquated language and then yeah take a it break takes and move me on. longer to get through five. Ep- well, I, of course it does, but it's just like, I find it it takes such a substantial amount of time for me to actually read those chapters that I'm like, I probably couldn't keep up with this if this was more because I get antsy. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. It's yeah. Yeah. Same. So it's a great podcast. We've talked about it before. We talked about it last week when Jess was here, but y'all should listen because they're great. And they've done Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice before. And now they're in Mansfield Park. And I'm really enjoying that as well. It's been good. Um, in terms of my obsessions this week, I am really into, I've gone full tilt into, I guess it's going to be my new fandom obsession. Maybe we'll see. To the book Legend Born by Tracy Dion. I have to give credit to Tasia who posted or sent around just one singular TikTok, which made me immediately pause and pull this book off of my shelf. It's like, yeah, I have all these library books and other things. I'm going to read this book. It is part or book one in a series. I don't know how many it's going to be. She hasn't posted anywhere yet, um, but it is a young adult fantasy book. It is set at the University of North Carolina, and it is a reimagining of the Arthurian legend. The main character, Bree, is 16 years old, and she is Black. And uh, what I loved about this book is how much it interwove the Arthurian legend with issues surrounding the history of slavery, racism, colonialism, sexism, uh, class differences into like a really compelling magical system and a really propulsive plot. And in, as is why a tradition of love triangle that is not bothering me for several reasons I don't want to get into for spoiler purposes, but I'm really into both all options that could potentially present itself in this triangle. It also has some of the best casual queer representation I've ever seen in a YA book. And by casual, I don't mean that's a bad thing. It's just very naturally interspersed in there. Um, there's a non-binary character who I really enjoyed their role in the in the story. And so it was just it kind of blew me away. I joined a Discord to talk about like theories and stuff of where it's going to go. The author, Tracy Young, is a great Twitter follow. She's a big fangirl. Uh, so it's just been a delightful week for me. I've spent too much time thinking about it. And you got, you all, you both need to read it. And then everyone else needs to read it too. And then talk to me about it. Cause I really liked that. And we're going to cover it here eventually on the podcast soon. I think. Yeah. That's what I'm waiting for. Spring. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll have to reread it. And such, you know, such I have for you a, a sacrifice I'll have to make, but. Those are really the only love triangles that I like. The ones where like the the choice isn't obvious. I feel like in so many love triangles, the choice is like, well, duh, why would you choose this trash bag? You know, but 
the the love triangles where it's like it really could go either way. Those are the yeah. those are the best ones. There are also potentially like three ways it could go. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So like it's <laughs> I I don't know. That's what's the appeal happen. of that book right there. Right. So I I have a feeling of where it's gonna go, but I don't know. And I'm like trying to like refresh my memory on Arthur and all of his counterparts to see where I think it's going to go based on who each of the characters is in relation to that myth. So I don't know. It could be wrong, but it's very fun to think about. Oh, and there's a great Twilight reference in it. So that just like endeared me to it as well. It made me laugh aloud. You love to see it. We love to see it. So let's talk about this book. It's so good, guys. Damn, I'm sad we're at the end, but it's really fun to talk about. The first half of this book, I was like, I I kept thinking, like all these things kept happening that I was like, this is the end of the book shit. Like this whole book feels like the end of the book, which makes sense because it's the end of the series, but it is just like wall to wall shit going down. It really is. Like just nonstop. It is so fast paced. Yeah. She, I don't know if it's, it's, it has to be a combination of like the way that she, I just feel like this book just is anxiety, like mm-hmm. in book form, because the first time I read it, I was so anxious about what was going to happen um, with our characters. I remember feeling like I am dreading opening this book because I don't want to read anything if it's a bad thing happening to anybody, but like, I have to finish it because I have to know. And so I just like, couldn't read it. I would like open the book and like (laughs) stare at it and be like, I can't deal with this. And then the second time through, it wasn't as much that of course, because I know what happens plot wise, but I still have that feeling of like, I don't want to do this, but like, I have to. (laughs) No, seriously, this was the most anxious I've ever been reading a book the first time I read it and I read it on vacation. I was like literally on a beach finishing this book, but I was just like, Oh my God, what is happening? Uh, you're just waiting the whole time for Gansy to have rain on his egg and sweater, which you get early in this book. And it's so exciting producing early and often. Like, How dare you? <laughs> yeah, I know it's so scary. Oh my God. Anyway, before we just like totally lose it here, let's do a quick book summary. Tasia, if you want to just let everyone know what happened here and then we'll, we'll really dive in. All right. Said a week after the end of Blue Lily, Lily Blue, the demon that was awoken by Piper slowly starts making its presence known throughout Henrietta, permeating Ronan's dreams, harming Cave's water, and possessing both Adam and Noah. In an effort to save Orphan Girl during one of his dreams, Ronan accidentally pulls her out of his dream, taking her to Cave's water to stay with his mother. Ronan and Adam spend more time together trying to come up with a solution to help Cave's water, but the danger continues to escalate, and they are forced to flee Cave's water with Orphan Girl. Gansey and Blue go to a party at Henry Chang's and become friendly with him. They leave the party only to encounter demon Noah, who attacks Blue. Gansey ultimately decides to come clean about the relationship as they all realize that everything is now coming to a head. Henry reveals that he knows there are dream things in Henrietta and tells Gansey his mother purchases them from Declan. Declan gets a heads up from a buyer, letting him know that something big is going to go down in Henrietta, and Declan tries to get Ronan to leave town. Just just wall-to-wall shit. (laughs) It's scary too. It is. This is, I think, the most cinematic out of all of the books because every other scene, like, and it's so scary, but every other scene I'm reading and I'm just picturing it in my head and how, like, incredible it would be to see that on screen because it's just got that, like, spooky quality out of, like, a really good horror movie. Yeah. Like, the scene of Adam in the bathroom is like, and all the straight horror movie. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
God, I think you mentioned this in your note. And I don't want to steal it from you, Tasia, but like we haven't actually talked about the fact that there was supposed to be a TV show. And it's, I don't know if it's strictly a COVID cancellation or what, but it does not seem as though it's going forward anymore per Maggie. And that's really sad, but it's particularly yeah. sad for this book. I like hate that, but it's also kind of a relief. Like I want to see it, but I also want to have already seen it and already know that it's good. So I could yeah. just stop like worrying about it. Well, this yeah. is one of those properties that I couldn't I couldn't casually watch it. Like it couldn't it couldn't be a casual adaptation for me. It would need to be exactly how I envision it in my head for me to be happy with it. Mm-hmm. So there's just like a lot of pressure there for right. anybody trying to adapt this. It's probably best for us. And all I feel like adaptations help. like that don't often like don't happen as much as like one, for example, like the magicians, which takes stuff from the source material and makes every single thing better because the source material struggles with like a lot of aspects of the storytelling and like the themes of those books. So since that's not the case with the Raven cycle, I'm like, don't get anybody in here who has like big ideas. (laughs) (laughs) I was encouraged though, because Maggie did write the pilot and Catherine Hardwick, who um, famously filmed the first Twilight movie, which I think is the only one out of the entire series that captures the look Mm -hmm. and the the tone of those books, the way they're supposed to be. So I I did have, I had faith that at least the, the pilot would be good. Oh, wow. Maybe it'll come back. Yeah. Yeah. Someday. I mean, they're going to like run out of TV to make because things are getting delayed and canceled and we'll have to like rush to put stuff back together. So, well, maybe if Shadow and Bone is a wild runaway success, then they will be um, encouraged to move forward. Yeah. Why a fantasy? Tap into the interests of young women is the moral of this podcast and the moral of the story. Listen to us, Netflix. And as cynical as it is to say, yeah, as cynical as it is to say, I mean, that is, if you want your wallet to be impacted by this, go for the the young girl demographic. I mean, yep. like, that's so obvious. Karen already said she read a one book one time and joined a whole Discord about it. So, like, it's not like we casually like things. Like, give us TV that's good, and we will literally follow that show around for the next <laughs> however many years you need. Yep. Oh, well. But... In terms of this book itself, there not, as with every book in this series, there's just so much juicy character stuff here. And I think the book really sets, like, starts that way, like, hits the ground running with this prologue here, which is another just really masterfully done section by Maggie. The, the callbacks, in particular, the very first line of this book to the very first line of the series, uh, with uh, mirroring those two passages, where it starts, you know, Richard Gansey III had forgotten how many times he'd been told he was destined for greatness compared to the mirroring of, of Blue's curse. It's just so good. <laughs> it, like, blows me away. Repetition is used to such great effect in this book. Like, there's themes of of things being repeated in in triple mm-hmm. and i mean as we know three is uh, the most magically powerful number so it's yeah. very intentional it's repeated throughout this this book it's really well done yeah and then to one of the things i think we've all noted in our notes about Kanzi, and this is a continuation of where he was in blue lily lily blue is the mounting anxiety about everything ending. And we find out here, and we talked about this a bit last week, is this acknowledgement in the prologue from Gansey that he knows 
now and he's come to terms with and has accepted the f- not ex- well I wouldn't say accepted but he's n- now more consciously thinking about the fact that his voice appearing on that tape on St. Mark's Eve means he's going to die this year mm-hmm. I love that we figure I love that we learn that Gansey knows that and has kind of been working to process that from his point of view like we don't hear him it's not like we find it out because he tells another character and then the drama of the scene is that other character being like, oh, my God, I can't believe you knew. It's just like us and Gansey. And we are like, oh, my God, I can't believe you knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes going back and looking at every interaction he's had previous to this, like so much like the way that he has been really trying to prepare all of his friends for this entire series for his own death mm. um, and, and trying to get Ronan to stay in school and trying to make sure that everybody's going to be OK without him. It's completely devastating. And also the way that he thinks to himself, even though he knows he's got like, you know, a few months at most to live, that he still considers himself so privileged and and so weak compared to everybody else. It is just, it's devastating. Gansey is such a tragic figure. He really is. He was a king. This was the year he was going to die. It's how that prologue ends. Like, yeah. and this is just a, a perfect statement of who Gansey is, but it doesn't make it any easier to read everything about him in this book. I just... I think it would be, like, really easy to make a character like Gansey becoming more and more, like, Gansey-like or more and more confident with the, like, the closer they get to when this is supposed to happen. But instead because it's Gansey, like we get the ramping up of his anxieties because there's no way that like he was ever going to be comfortable leaving his friends because he just, he loves them so much. Like there was no confidence for him to find in like wrapping up his affairs. But um, I'm just obsessed with the fact that like the more, the, the more like quote unquote normal Gansey's reactions are to the world around him, the more blue is like, Oh, this is that boy that I saw. Like this is, that's like Blue's Gansey, the more he becomes like filled with anxiety. And I just like love that because Blue's not like particularly anxious, but she does think a lot outside of herself. And I that's like so far from Gansey when we first meet him. I just love it. I know. His, that's such a good point, too, about how any other character who was like Gansey would just become more empowered kind of by this and this kind of knowledge that it all kind of is coming down to him and it's totally the opposite for Gansey and that's what I think is the just what makes this series so marvelous I would not normally love a character like Gansey like I do for I think exactly what you said and we get so many good instances of that here you know he he thinks in the prologue he didn't know why he had been saved he needed to know why he had been saved he just he is very cognizant of the fact that he's been given the second chance and it's all going to come to an end here. But why? Why did that happen? And he's running out of time to figure out the answers to that. And he's just such a good boy. And then I love to, for someone who's so full of wonder and mystery of magic, we've talked a lot about how he and Blue in particular are just so in awe of the magic of caves water and things like that. But now that he has these powers too, he still is like kind of struggling with them. And he, he thinks about, he didn't know how Adam or Ronan or blue ever came to grips with their magical capabilities because he certainly couldn't. And then he, he's clinging to the possibility that when he finds Glendower, he would explain the intricacies of Gansey to Gansey. Oh, poor baby. I know. So he's still just really trying to, 
figure out what this all means and why him. And it's just so relatable and so endearing. And he's just. And it's also why I think he finds so much thrilling about those moments where he feels known by somebody. Like when, when Henry does the Gansey like thing and he's like, and he figures out what Gan like, he's like, I don't even know what Gansey like is. And then he figures out when Henry says this is a test of metal and he thinks, oh, yes, like he has that that thrilling moment and also that moment at Henry's party when he feels known by Blue when she says, oh, you know, don't be don't be uh, fooled by his fancy hair. He would he would hike and he just feels <laughs> so known and so like so thrilled by it. Yeah, I think that Gansey thinks that in order to be known, he like has to know himself. So these little moments of his friends uh, being able to like really see him quite clearly and, you know, give that back to him. He's like, oh, this yeah. is so exciting. Like, it, you know, it's just one of the, another one of those things like Gansey kind of has to learn how to like let go of control of that, because obviously if you have to be completely known to yourself for anyone else to know you like that's impossible we're all just islands <laughs> you know if that's right nice. and i mean adam feels the exact same way mm-hmm. right and thinking he's are- unknowable but while realizing that everybody actually knows him and unknowable was a joke oh the God. only person who didn't know adam parish was adam parish i can't handle it i think i'm gonna be unhinged <laughs> today guys this is, this is I'm, we're not starting off well for me i personally. mean what have i been doing in in our DMs, <laughs> it's just every day the I'm posting like the shambles. entire book. Yeah, it's 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 just been a mess. Out of control. Uh, out I'm like at control. work crying every day I trying know. to type yeah. up my notes. So Ellie, and that's just what I think all of this just, again, is what makes Gansey so endearing. And I've talked before on this podcast about like, I, I just, I think, relate to any character who shows anxiety here because I'm like a very anxious, worrywart type person. That's why I love Noah in a lot of ways. But I found this moment from Gansey so relatable. It was starting, starting. No, it was ending. He was ending. This was the landscape of his personal apocalypse. What was excitement when he was wakeful melted into dread when he was tired. And I'm like, whoa, that is like such a mood I relate to so much where you're like, it, everything is 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 easier to handle during the daytime and at night. It, it just seeps into all the self-doubt that you have. And I just, him laying awake at night, I, I often... Can, as t- like Tasia said too, like we, I think all experience that sometime where you're just like up in the middle of the night, like panicking, and I'm like Gansy, it's like hopeful to see how he ultimately kind of moves through that here, um, and he still ends up managing to be such a great friend to everyone despite having this like knowledge hanging over his head. He's just a good boy. I don't want to get like super far into like the ending of the book, but since it's like all spoilers this whole time. I like want to touch on it because this idea of like unmaking is like so strong throughout this book in like a very uh, like I guess real way with like the demon but it's like Gansey is also being unmade throughout this whole book and then he's eventually remade like you know metaphysically but actually it's just like this you know searched for Glendower being a metaphor for like coming of age or growing up this hits so hard for me in this book because like we all kind of have to unmake and remake to move through any of these phases and so like watching this happen to Gansey was like just personally for me it's so relatable like Gansey's not normally my favorite character but the idea of him going through all of these struggles to like not know if he's going to be able to get to the other side of something is like so close to my heart right now yeah yeah he's (laughs) god 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just again, just not doing well. I don't know. Well, and it doesn't, now I'm just thinking too about uh, one of the other really endearing things about about Gansey is his relationship with Blue too. And we just get so many good moments here with him and like the relationship. So I guess we can talk, start talking about some bluesy stuff here because his ruminations on everything that he's going through and how he like knows that his death is coming and how that relates to his relationship with blue just really is for me, some of the most heart wrenching stuff in this book. Well, yeah. Cause he's lamenting the fact that he can't, he's, wasting essentially these last moments of his life not being able to openly be with the person he loves and and it's all because he's a he's a coward and this and this and that scene when they're in Cape's water and they see the dying tree and he knows he knows blue well enough at this point that he sees her and he's like blue gives so much energy away and the way she gets it back is through physical touch and she needs somebody to comfort her but he can't do that and the line is her voice was so melancholy that Gansey was struck all at once by what he and Blue really lost by keeping their relationship a secret. Blue radiated psychic energy for others, but touch was where she gained hers back. She was always hugging her mother or holding Noah's hand or linking her elbow in Adam's or resting her boots on Ronan's legs as they sat on the sofa. Touching Gansey's neck just between his hair and his collar, the worry in her tone demanded fingers braided together, arms on shoulders, cheeks rested against chest. But because Gansey was too cowardly to tell Adam about falling in love with her, she had to stand there with her sadness by herself. Aurora <laughs> took Blue's hand, shame diffused through him, black as the tree step. Is this really how you want to spend the rest of your time? And I have <laughs> I have several thoughts about this whole scene. First of all, I love I love the breakdown of the way blue gets her her psychic energy back with all of them and how close they all are and how she has like specific way like physical ways of interacting with all of these boys it's extremely precious also i love because i think uh maybe in the last book or in an earlier chapter blue noted about aurora that she was basically created to love somebody in exactly the way they were meant to be or exactly the way they needed so aurora sees Blue and, and even though she doesn't know Blue as well, she knows what Blue needs. So Aurora holds her hand, and I think that's that's really sweet too. Yeah, that scene is beautiful. In like just his thought process through them, just like feels so natural, and it's it's so upsetting because you know you we've followed them through four books, and they're just like hurtling through this, and you just really want them to just like be out with it at this point because you know I'm full of dread that what is going to happen to Gansey as the reader and they both know they haven't talked about it but they both know that he's going to die and they're they're just not making the most of that time and it's really just I feel exactly what Gansey feels in that moment and I just think it's funny that um they're like oh we can't we can't physically touch each other when we're around everybody because they'll know but they know anyway Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you well, guys maybe are except not, for Ronan because Ronan. You guys are not like you guys are just. I mean, <sighs> Gansy calls himself a coward, and like I believe that, but it just makes me sad to say, so I won't say it. But <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. No, it. They're not being subtle, really. Like it would probably be more normal if they would have just touched a little bit this whole time because Blue touches all of them, and then they would have like their normal behavior to cover for it, but they've never been normal. They've been spooky the whole time, and so everybody knows anyway. Right. Their avoidance of physical contact and like any kind of eye contact even 
is just it speaks volumes it speaks way more than there's a couple times have. where like adam notes the way that like blue's looking at gansy i just love that because i'm like you two are idiots <laughs> you ain't slick <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really and i i will we'll talk about adam too in this book and in, in the next our next episode when we talk about like his ideas and like rumination of of love but yeah the fact that like adam who is probably the he he we've talked about this before here the least familiar with love is picking up on it so clearly with the two of them because he can recognize like wanting right yeah well he has he has that that scene where he thinks he had not known he could love not really gansey and he had fought about it once gansey has said with disgust stop saying privilege love isn't a privilege but gansey had always had love had always been capable of love now that adam had discovered this feeling in himself he was more certain than ever that he was right need was adam's baseline his resting pulse love was a privilege adam was privileged he did not want to give it up he wanted to remember again and again how it felt so he does like at this point he is he's getting there with yeah. those feelings so he and he he knows he i think mentions at one point that he he sees blue looking at Gansy and he thinks she never looked at me like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know who looks at me like that though? Oh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. He knows that too. Yeah, a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's going to be, sorry, I mean, sorry, we're sorry. all wearing pinched shirts. So just buckle up. <laughs> I know. Get ready. But what I love then though, in comparing that earlier scene is everything that happens at the urgent care, or the immediate care is I was just, it like hurts my heart to read that scene but like in the best way the love and understanding that comes through from everyone in that scene is is really good but like Gansey uh, it just breaks my heart I'm just gonna read it because it's just such a big moment for him they come in first of all though and they like see Gansey just like sitting with his head in his hands and he's obviously so upset and then Gansy's like, look, I need to say something. It's a strange time. But so here it is. I cannot ask you to be truthful if I haven't been myself. And he does the endearing Gansy thing, which is touching his thumb to his lower lip. He catches himself with it. He puts his hand down. And he goes, Blue and I have been seeing each other. I don't want to hurt any feelings, but I want to keep seeing her. I don't want to hide it anymore. It's eating me in nights like this, having to stand here and look at Blue with her face like this and pretend like... He drew himself to a stop, a full stop, a silence so intense that no one tipped any other sound into it. Then he finished repeating, I cannot ask you to do things that I have been doing myself. I'm sorry for being a hypocrite. It's just, I feel his emotion in that moment so palpably. We're not even in his POV. Like, can you imagine if we were in his head during the scene, if we had to like really deal now? With like, oh no. we're in Blue's perspective during the Noah attack, and now we're in Adam's perspective. If I had to be in Gansey's POV, I would like lose my goddamn mind. I'm already losing my goddamn mind because I know <laughs> like what Blue is thinking about in that scene. She like can tell like how upset Gansey is and how nervous Gansey is. But then this scene is all from Adam's POV, and he can pick up on it too. I'm I'm so glad it's out there. I hate that it comes at the hands of this like horrific moment for blue and it, but it's just such a good moment of reckoning for Gansey and such a good moment of reckoning for the group to be like, shit is getting real as fuck. We have to like, just put all our cards on the table here. They don't put well, especially because Adam and Ronan show up, even though they just went through this horror, like horrifying thing in Capeswater, they show up still being kind of cavalier about shit. 
and they're making jokes and not really taking it seriously until Gansey is like, oh, she'll keep the eye, you know? And like, what did you think? I, I called you like for no reason. I was panicking for nothing. Like everybody kind of needed that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that rude awakening. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it's like a great moment too for Adam in terms of his realization of just that. Like he's like, I've been just scrying in caves water by myself. Like everything's fine. And he's like, mm, no, like Ronan just dove into a pool of acid to save the orphan girl. And then like caves water was like collapsing in around us. Perhaps we need to like really have a think about what is happening here. But I, so I just, I really love that moment. It's a great, you know, we, and we can talk about it too here in a second of like the hiding of the relationship and how Adam deals with that. But I think it's just a really, I like how it ultimately shakes out if they're going to, I don't, they should not have hidden it for so long, but like the fact that it comes after this like really horrific thing, it's just a really good way and a, a clever way to like point to the danger and be like, it's life is life is too short. Time is too short. We've, we've got to just like get our cards on the table here and like be together and everyone needs to know. But yeah. at, that bluesy moment though comes after the toga party, which the while toga we're at party the party is I talk about it. It's just a God tier bluesy moment. Like that, that scene when they're like caught on the stairs and he put, Oh my God. Well, Gansy lets her drive. Yeah, first yeah. of all, Ooh, the party because she's in a bad mood, and I'm like, that that's sex. <laughs> like they're having sex, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's now she was the one driving the pig, which had a threefold benefit. For starters, Gansey couldn't imagine anyone whose mood wouldn't be marginally lifted by driving a Camaro. Second, Blue said she never got a chance to practice driving in Foxway's communal vehicle. And third, most importantly, Gansey was outrageously and eternally driven to distraction by the image of her behind the wheel of his car. It's yeah. It's sex. <laughs> it's sex. And Gansy's well, just watching. He's like, I know you're having a bad day, but hot. And like this, me making this joke about them having sex, which like I am joking, but I'm also a very serious. Um, <laughs> that reminds me of like earlier in the book, Blue thinks like, oh, I just want to be Gansy's best friend and like maybe have carnal knowledge of him one day. And I'm like, that is such a simple thing mm-hmm. for these young people in love to want it's so easy to take for granted for those of us who aren't cursed but then again it's like Gansy and Blue get to have this very unique and very intimate relationship that they are not allowed to take for granted and there are so many ways to experience intimacy that I'm like this is really beautiful and even though I am a basic bitch and I'm like I wish y'all could kiss I also am like this (laughs) is the most precious thing in the entire world and you get to have like car sex that doesn't uh seem trashy you know there's so much, there's something so much better about the wanting of it and not being able to have it that makes it like a thousand times sexier somehow. Yeah. But that's <sighs> such a good point though, too, Melissa, though, about like the idea of how like their relationship necessarily becomes more intimate in other ways. And that's what's really great about bluesy is, and we talked about this a little bit already, like this idea of, of knowing each other, you know. This moment from Gansey too. I'm not gonna. We'll, we'll save some of the parts for swoon at the end uh, because <laughs> I know we all have a lot of that noted down. But uh, Gansey thinks at one point the better he got to know her, the more it felt like he did when he was swimming. There stopped being dissonant versions of him. There was only Gansey now, now, now. And so we've talked a lot about Gansey having these like time slipping moments. We get more of that here, and we're all barreling towards that end game. But the fact that they have just such a 
basic understanding of each other is really so, so special. And it really, it does not make up for the fact that they are burdened by this curse, but it really does fill in the gaps really well. And it's very endearing. The curse itself makes it more sad to me that they are not allowed to be physical together because they're so close. But if they didn't have the curse, it probably their relationship wouldn't have ended like this. So I'm like, <laughs> that's a really, I just can't deal with it. <laughs> God, you know, uh, I, it's hard to think about. It really is. I think we all just broke our brains a little bit with that one. <laughs> like, fuck uh, these poor babies, but you know, they have each other and that's really important at the end of the day. We just got to keep thinking about that in terms of like end game here. They have each other. It's okay. Uh, so it's all the friends we made along the way. It really is. So let's then, while we're on the subject of Lucy, we can talk a little bit here uh, more about Blue uh, in this book. Guys, I had a revelation. I texted Tasia this. I did not tell Melissa this. I've had an epiphany when it comes to Blue Sergeant and myself today. As I was typing up my notes and rereading some bits. I realized where my disconnect with Blue has come. Uh, It's because she reminds me way too much of myself. And once I realized this, and I forget which line it was exactly that I read, and I was like, oh, shit, this is me. I, like, stopped and Googled it. I already was kind of wondering whether Blue was a Leo because, you know, her birthday is in August, like, around the start of school, and I am also a Leo. I Googled it. We don't know her exact birth date, but apparently Maggie has confirmed she is a Leo, and I'm like, oh, yeah, it, like, makes sense that me as a Leo does not like this other Leo. Like, we don't play well together, but it, like, it's seeing a lot of things that I have disliked about myself in a fictional character and it's made it really hard for me and I Tasia I think you said this previously on the podcast if not you've definitely said it to us in terms of like your Adam feelings once you like realized that a lot of what Adam was doing reminded you of yourself you were able to connect with him more and I feel like my mind has been blown as to Blue Sergeant (laughs) right now because it's like oh shit like it me it me oh this is the line she could feel herself hurtling towards self-awareness and she wasn't sure she liked it I love that so much. <laughs> like, um, oh my God. This revelation of yours is really funny to me because I always make this joke that I just collect Leos, like several of my exes and one of my very best friends in the world are Leos. Like I have spent probably most of my adult time with Leos and I love Blue so much. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad, and I'm like, glad someone loves us. Yes. And I love her more and more in each book. I am like very obsessed with her, like growing confidence with her mirror powers. Like she's very, what's the word I'm looking for? Like proactive with like using them. No one has to like remind her like, Hey blue, like you, you can do these things. Um, but this kind of like coincides with like her diminishing confidence in her previously held opinions, which is like something that I struggle with in my life. So I like to see like my homegirl that I love doing these things too. So one of the one of those is my favorite quotes, which you just said about hurtling towards self-awareness. But the other one, um, when she talked, and I think I have this actually written down. So I'll just say like the more she grows comfortable with like what she is, she can like let go of some of this like self-righteousness that she was like using as protection. And I would like to figure out how to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's hard. And I like to think that now that I'm in my thirties, I'm much better. But like, I look back to myself at high school age and I was like, Corinne, why are you giving blue such a hard time for such a, having such a binary and like stubborn way about thinking 
thinking about things when that was you. Like I still can be that way. So it's, I, and I think a lot of it really comes to a head here in, in this book, even more so than in Blue Lily Lily Blue, because she is forced now in particular vis-a-vis Henry to like confront her feelings about Aglamy boys and how like that was wrong. And mm. I just, it, it kind of is blowing me away. I'm in my favorite. My favorite moment of that, of her self-awareness is um, when she's standing outside her school and Henry pulls up in his Fisker and they they put on this whole performance because she realizes she's like, she's looking at this stack of, of all of the, not your bitch and fuck the Aglumby boys and this and this and that. And she's like, oh, it looks like that stack needs to be labeled with Blue Sergeant as a hypocrite. And then she gets, you know, she puts on the performance and chases Henry away. And then Gansy immediately pulls up. And oh she's my like, God, God, it's damn so it. funny. She's like, it's going to have to be written in my own handwriting. Like, and she has to take a minute there for like self-reflection. She's like, all right, this, this is who I am. We're, we're accepting it. Now we're rolling with it. Keep coming. Yeah. 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 It, yeah, that, that's one of my favorite scenes, I think, in this book. It's so good. Which like, I think also because it's just purely, like, funny. And then it's like a break in all of the, like, anxiety and, like, holy shit, all these things are happening just for this, like, real, these really funny character moments with, like, Henry, who's new. Like, we're maybe not sure about him yet. And Blue, who is just, like, really trying to, like, maintain her right. shit. And she can't because <laughs> well, these boys keep showing up to her school. Well, it really endears you to Henry, too, as a new character, because he immediately, like, gets it and, like, rolls mm-hmm. with it. And he's, like, he's the one who starts. And he's, like, the super extra to- performance he puts on. Like, he's, like, a he very threw a little bit of uh, <laughs> extra hysteria in there than the role required. And also, I love, like, one of the first things he says to her when he rolls up to her school is all, um, I see you tried to call your eye out. It's edgy. <laughs> <laughs> it's. He, uh, yeah, so that's a that's a great scene, but that's like coming on the heels of s- several moments where Blue is mm-hmm. thinking about her her previous thoughts and how she has to like, readjust uh, her expectations and has to like reckon with having those those different feelings and how things have changed. But what I really love in what my favorite my other favorite scene for like to completely different reasons in this first half is the scene in the bathroom at Foxway. And it just, man, it just really, there's so many great moments in there. Uh, this idea of, of family, we can talk, I guess we can kind of go th- chronologically through the scene. But one of the first things Blue thinks in that moment is when um, Jimmy pulls her onto her lap and they're like sitting on the toilet. She's like, you're going to break the toilet. But she thinks Blue could not understand how this childish comfort was at once soothing and suffocating. She was both glad for it and wishing that she could be someplace with fewer threads tying her to every challenge or sadness in her life. And I just, I, I relate to that a lot too, you know, and that's such a good YA representation, I feel too, in particular, this idea of you're growing up and you feel these connections to your home and where you come from, but like you want to break free and you want to bust out of there. And on top of that, Blue has not just those, you know, standard, I guess, feelings, but she has all these complications about the, these friendships she's had and, and how they're kind of barreling towards disaster and she has dreams that are maybe outside of her reach. And I think it's just all so really well done. I think it's a great scene for Mora too, just as a parent, because she's sitting there and she's like, you know, what do you want? Not out of college, but out of life. Like gives her the talk, like, you know, college isn't necessary. Like it's not the end all be all. Like, what do you want to do with your life? Not what do you want to do with school? And also kind of encouraging her to accept 
help. Like it's not charity. It's, you know, Gansey would help you mm-hmm. and you know that it wouldn't be a charity thing. Like it, you can accept that. From other they people. make this point that there's going to be life for blue after Gansey dies. And it just Ouchie. really deeply hurts me because <laughs> blue has all these thoughts about like, is it like, what about, you know, about true love? I think we all, we all think about this. Like, is it just one shot and then it's over? Like, yeah. She already knows she's going to be here without him. And like, you don't know if like, it's just one true love or like, you know, whatever, but it's so sad. <laughs> yeah. Really well, is. and I mean, we, we have to read this quote too, which is just heartbreaking, but it makes so much sense. It feels like such a waste falling in love with all of them. All of them really meant all of them. 300 Foxway, the boys, Jesse Ditley for a sensible person. Blue thought that maybe she had a problem with love in a dangerous voice. She added, don't say it's good life experience. Do not. And it's just, <laughs> Jesse Tilly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> She's just, re- they really have has been through it this year and just really having to, to reckon with loss in such a new way. And it's, it's so upsetting. Well, the fact that all the women are in the house in that scene, sitting in the full bathtub, trying to contact Persephone <laughs> and all crying about it. Like, oh it my. is. It's all around just such a good scene. And then there's like humor too, because Orla is trying to uh, brush through Maura's hair at one point. She like swatches her away. Braid her hair. hair, And she's telling Blue that that, uh, we're animals. We make love in the bushes. Monogamy is bullshit. Like, yeah, right. Orla, read the room. While true, not the point of this conversation. I just had this thought that. The the women of Foxway like give Blue some shit about her friend group, but like look at yourselves, ladies. <laughs> you are all in the bathtub together. You have standing drinking games that you all like play together to like work on your psychic powers. Like, um, I'm seeing some strong similarities between this hodgepodge group of women and Blue's, you know, <laughs> gang of Raven boys. Well, and right. I I like then though too how that kind of calls back to the first full chapter of this book, which is the Uh, tarot reading massive tarot reading they do at foxway and they're all kind of reckoning with the fact that this group has to do this together and they're looking to see if there's a way that they can intervene to kind of save the group as a collective and save gansey and they can't and i just i love that scene too and so then to get kind of more of that here they're trying to solve the actual problem for for blue ostensibly but for gansey and for the group in that scene but here they're trying to provide just more advice for blue because they can't they can't fix it they've tried they tried to do this terror reading and see if they could come up with some other solution and they can't so they all they can do is prepare their girl as best as they oh. can to like go forward in the world but like in it I, I was like looking through my notes and individually these lines almost sound so trite we get things like you can't compare one person's coping capacity to another's hun um it's not always running away to leave but it's only your origin story, not your final destination. It's not always a forever goodbye. They're leaving and coming back. The difference between a nice house and a nice prison is really small. All of those kind of sound like meaningless platitudes in a lot of ways, if you just like extrapolate them from that paragraph. But having come to this point, knowing the women at Foxway, knowing Blue as we do, knowing everything that Blue's gone through, that scene just works so well. And it we all could use those lessons at any point in our life but blue really needs them at that point and it just i really like that scene it's really really good stuff from maggie one of the other things though too then i think is kind of a natural continuation of that uh kind of thought process and we continued growth for blue though 
is the fight that she has with Adam uh, about Gamzee. Because there's so much stuff to talk about with that scene. But what I like about it for Blue is, and again, this is when I'm like, holy shit, no wonder you struggle with her, Corinne, because this is you. Like, she's trying really hard to temper herself in that moment, which is like big growth for Blue. She thinks at one point the fair part of Blue is well aware that she was in the wrong. And and so it was her job to diffuse his legitimate hurt. But the prideful part of her still would have preferred to point out how difficult he had been back when she and Gansey had first realized they had feelings for each other with some effort. She went with the middle ground. Compromise. Growth. So like, proud of her. Yeah. Like really, really good stuff. Hey, this is another there. like like a like a parallel to the fight that they had in the Dream Thieves where they're both kind of right and they're both kind of wrong. Like they've they've both got good points to make and they've both fucked up. But it they're both so much like they've grown so much from that point that they're both really taking the middle road. And even though I I have issues with Adam kind of taking that entire thing out on blue mm-hmm. and never once talking to Gansey about it. I, I don't like that a whole lot, but I understand in the moment, like it, it came up organically and it wasn't something he intended to confront her about. But um, I do like that. I feel like both of them tempered themselves so much more than they would have even a book ago. Right. I think in the Dream Thieves, Blue is deflecting so much. She's trying to protect herself while also being really mad at Adam. And here she's more owning. I mean, she ha- she's being immediately confronted with the fact of her feelings for Gansey and her relationship with Gansey, but she's not really shying away for it either. She's just trying to, rather than just lash out like she did the last time, this time she's trying to to just be more measured in her response. And we're in her POV this time. Last time we were in Adam's POV. Uh, but you can see that he too is, is he's not throwing things at her with quite the same vitriol that he did the last time. I don't, he's not trying to be intentionally harmful as he was the last time um, we, we talked about how he last time was saying things that he knew would be harmful not that he actually believed them here it's he's saying things that he believed but they're they're coming from a better a better place i feel i totally get like it's not fair that blue takes the brunt of this and i think it's more maggie's fault than adam's fault i mean literally though everything is everything (laughs) is she she wrote the books because of how she sets it up i don't feel like mad at adam for doing that like i feel bad that blue has to like face this alone but like the fact that this all happens in a day two blows my mind but like adam just comes from being possessed by the demon at raven day yeah he's like a wreck when he gets to he's Nino's. like still wet from the bathroom so he like goes to and we Nino's. know how he feels about his like clothes he's like gaggling clothes wow that's a really good actually a really good point like if you the one mechanism for your control finally goes outside of your control like what spirals from there but what I like about it, though, is, like, he's he's not really, like, coming in primed for a fight. Like, he's just, like, exhausted and, like, overwhelmed. He's like, okay, we got to talk about Gansey and, like, saving him. And so he's coming in prepared to have that conversation. And then she's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to this Togo party with Gansey. And so, I, as you said, too, TJ, I see how it, like, naturally comes It wasn't, like, that. a planned attack. Yeah. Right. I think still... when she, like, also she's like, oh, unless Ronan's going to Adam's, like, I'll lose my shit. He's like, that would never happen. But also, I cannot believe all my friends are thinking about going to this party when I was just possessed by a demon in a basement. Right. Okay. Look at me. I right. am dirty. <laughs> yeah. 
Right. So, and like, he doesn't tell her that either. I get it though. And what I like about being in Blue's point of view at that time is that she never thinks that like Adam's being jealous of the fact that like she's into Gansey. But like Adam's whole thing, and I think it's pretty clear is that from to Blue too, is that like he's just concerned, very concerned about about Gansey because he knows the truth about him going to die. So like, I also feel like that's kind of a condescending accusation on his part. Like she's been living with this curse her entire mm-hmm. life and he's going to be there like, oh, what, what are you sure you're not going to like fall? And, and yeah, that's you, not a great look. Oh, yeah, like I'm it is hundred percent sure considering yeah, we've been dating for months it's and super, it's never happened. Yeah, it's super condescending. I also, I mean, later on when, when Gansey, I mean, Gansey doesn't have to be confronted. Gansey just comes out with it, but he had been hiding it for all that time too. And Adam just goes, this is the respect I was looking for. And it's like, yeah, but also, Gansy, well, you know, in just, a vacuum, Gansey in that in that moment, then Gansey would have been the one confronted. I just don't like that. Like maybe at that moment, be like, hey, I yelled at Blue about this earlier. Yeah. So I'm going to give think, you some shit, too. Yeah, I think in a vacuum um, before we started kind of talking about these scenes, you know, together instead of me thinking about them separately. I really like that line that Adam says about like, um, you know, respect is what I wanted and respect is what I'm, you know, looking at, even if belated, because when I'm not thinking about that in in connection to this conversation she has with Blue, I'm like, there's definitely a time when Adam would never have recognized that the problem of Blue and Gansey not telling him about the relationship is Blue and Gansey. It's like not Adam. So for Adam to be able to like realize like none of this is on me and like this is going to all be good. Like I really love that for Adam. But when we're thinking about it, when we're talking about how he like kind of lays into Blue about it, I'm like, all right, that's kind of shitty because like, Blue respects you too. It's not like she lied. Like you came at her guns blazing when you're trying to like have this pretty serious and like kind of scary conversation. Like, yeah, I, you know, he could have given her, he could have thought about the same benefit of of the doubt he gave Gansy. Yeah. Yeah. As well. Cause you're allowed to be upset about this. Like, you know what I mean? Like he can, he can still be huffy when he goes to see blue and still act like he is recognizing that she is doing right by him, yeah. you know, when given the opportunity. So my thought then, though, is like, okay, so if he then at that scene, which we talked about how emotionally charged and upsetting that urgent care scene is, if he had gone in there and like actually giving Gamzee a hard time at that moment, that would have been like would huge be- aggression. <laughs> and we'd be so pissed at him. Yeah, so, like- that would suck too. But I mean, I think it's still fair to say that. I think the problem is that... what he does with Blue, not what he does with Gansey. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, no. I, I Because he instantly gives... And I, yeah, the, the circumstances are obviously completely different. But um, he gives Gansey the benefit, the benefit of the doubt that he never even considered giving Blue in that moment, which isn't cool. Which is why in that moment in, be- in their original fight in Blue's bedroom, why I was mad at Blue for attacking Adam over not inviting her to a party that wasn't her, you know, his party. That yeah. Wasn't his yeah. party to invite her to. And she never gave Gansey shit about that. So, you know, yeah, I'm mad, mad about that too. It's just, you know, you, even I do think it's a little <laughs> bit more fair aggression. for Adam to be mean to not mean, but I think that Adam's response to Blue is actually kind of justified because of Blue's self righteousness. It's valid, at least. You yeah. know, like right. we know that if like anything like this would have happened with Blue on the receiving end, like she would have been she wouldn't have, she would have handled it worse than like Adam and she wouldn't have allowed anybody to come forward with it. She would have been yeah, like pitching a huge fit. It's hard for me too, though, because we know, because we, we see Adam does not see, but we, as the reader see all of these moments with 
blue in Gansey and like he's not off base. I mean, like they have to like catch themselves like multiple times. Yeah. So like he, I mean, like it's it's very interesting. We can talk about this more too. Like when we cover the back half of this book, like what is Adam Parrish's like experience level here? Because like he never gets to kiss Blue, and like he thinks about later how he's at Ronan's first kiss. I'm like, how? Like he seems to like be tapped in onto into teenage that hormones me, in a way. Yeah. That, like I that like, tells me that he is not that Ronan is not his first kiss. Who are you? Right. What that line to told Adam me. Adam who exactly. are you kissing, Adam mm-hmm. Parrish? Because he seems to have a very intimate knowledge of like what it's like to get carried away with someone. Again, he does not know the extent of Blue and Gansey's like secret card dates, but like he's he's kind of got that right. Like they've had their like oh shit moments like a couple of times with the stairwell scene in particular i think so it sucks that it's blue it sucks and like from an objective standpoint to like have this like uh, the girl of the relationship be the one that's my problem is it feels pointed that the girl is the only one that's getting shit for this it's like when you catch your boyfriend cheating and you're mad at the girl he cheated with like i don't like it but i just i just which is basically what happened with adam and Kathy. yeah (laughs) Yeah. but i don't (laughs) but do you think that like i don't think that adam is doing it because she's the girl I don't think so. It's I just, think that's I think just, it's just an unfortunate. It's, just, it's an unfortunate it's side effect. Yeah, unfortunate coincidence that you know it yes. still rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, no, and I, yeah. I I totally get that. I just like that's why I'm gonna blame Maggie for it and not blame Adam <laughs> Parrish. Yeah. Okay, although I do love how like it kind of is like later on when Blue is doing more self reflecting and she's thinking about she felt one thousand years old. She also felt like maybe she was a condescending brat. She wanted her bike. She wanted her friends who were also one thousand year old condescending. Brats. <laughs> I love that. So she much. wanted to live in a world where she was surrounded by one thousand year old condescending brats. That is the gangsy. Yes, right there. They really You're all <laughs> ancient. Just little shitheads, and I, I love you. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. And they're they- all so set in their ways for being literally <laughs> seventeen to eighteen years old. <laughs> but that's why we love them, and they all do. Especially in this book, too, they all like fuck up in so many ways, and it's it's they. But they all still love each other so much. When we talk about like some more Ronin stuff, we can talk about like him and Gansy are really like going at in this book. So they're all like giving each other shit on multiple levels here. And yeah, they still love each other and we still love them. So it's, it's fine. I love that quote from, from it's Blue, so though. good. It's, it's just another, so perfect for all of them. I love, I love it so much. That's another like ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Uh, Corinne, this is you moment. A, a younger <laughs> version of you. So like not the thousand year old things with condescending brat may have applied to me. I, at I all in my it, life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, well, this I, feels like a good point to transition to Adam. Yeah. You want to do that? Let's talk about Adam. Again, this is the theme of this reread for me. Love Adam. <laughs> Adam. <laughs> he, God. Adam feels so much more. I mean, you take him from book two to book four, and it is just the most stark difference. He is so mm-hmm. much more self-assured. He's so much more confident. Even though he has these moments where he thinks he hated himself and then he hated his father and then he gave the emotion to Cave's Water in his head and Cave's Water rolled it away. That in itself is is even progression for Adam because before he would just internalize it so much until it built up and he raged out in some kind of way. But mm-hmm. now he knows to, that he can trust Cave's Water and he can give that emotion away and he can let it roll off his back. And he just, there's something so self-assured about him in this book. I don't, I don't even know what to do with it. It's so good. I love <laughs> that this book is like, 
it's not as much like active growth for Adam because he's already kind of went through that stuff. But now we get to see like his newfound abilities magically and like emotionally and like his confidence and self-assuredness that you were saying, like we get to see that being tried, you know, like with the demon, but also with these relationships, there's this growing thing between him and Ronan that like we would never would have seen, you know, in previous iterations of Adam. But I just like this idea that like, Adam went through everything that he went through in the last uh, three books. And he is like ahead of the rest of the gangsy in terms of growth and um, being able to like keep his shit together. Like, I just love that for Adam because I think that he, I don't know if he would ever think about them in terms like that, but I think that if he did and he realized that he was like the quote unquote, like adulting winner <laughs> when it comes to like emotional control i think he would be happy <laughs> that he which is hilarious because Gansy is like <laughs> referred to constantly in this book as the dad but adam really is the one with the yes. most emotional maturity yes yeah. i love the scene at school when Gansy is being like full-on richard campbell Gansy the third with the boys at school and adam is just like chilling like super confident you know, behind Gansy, like he doesn't even care that he his time is being wasted with this interaction. Like he's just super chill about it. He thinks that he's confident in his place as one of Gansy's two favorites. I'm like, oh, Adam, Gansy has three favorites. That's okay though. Like you should still be confident. And like technically, Gansy's about to have four favorites, but you should still be confident. And yeah. like he is confident. And I just I love to see it so much. Yeah, he's definitely much more mature mature he is the most mature here and like then he's like mediating between them too at certain parts like when Gansey and Ronan are fighting I think it's after they pull that Ronan pulls orphan girl from his dreams and Gansey says something like you know your dreaming affects all of us and uh, Ronan snaps and Adam's like oh no Ronan like I don't pick sides but like this is all like we are in this like we you have to be so i think what we've established here is that adam is the mom friend to gansy's dad friend (laughs) (laughs) oh mr gray believes in like a matriarchal society is what we're getting at because he says that thing about adam being the leader of the gangsy and more Mm -hmm. is like hmm but it's like this quiet practical power like when he says that i'm just like Game recognized game. <laughs> I love that moment too. And it all, we've talked about this like in our earliest episodes on this podcast, but how we like have weird feelings about Adam then and called on the Hawk kind of modeling himself after Gansey. But I feel better about it the more we've talked about it and the more we read it. He is so similar. He is a leader in a lot of the same ways as, as Gansey. And it feels like a lot more of natural progression uh, to get to that point uh, because of moments exactly like this. Like he, he is so similar to Gansey in a lot of ways. So it makes sense that he has kind of adopted a little bit more of that personality when he goes there. So I, I feel less troubled by that. Yeah. I love that moment for Mr. Gray. I, I, I also love Maura's like reaction to it where she's basically like, this is Gansey's series, but go off. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But it's like in this book, Adam is the one with like the most control over all of the supernatural things that are going on. He is the one that is kind of holding the emotional reins of this group in like a lot of ways. So I think that it's just like Mr. Gray is not blinded by, you know, right. Anzi boy. (laughs) Well, and we talked about this last week, too. Like when they're in the cave at the end of Lily Lily Blue, and Adam's like, Okay, you're gonna do this, you're gonna do this. And Gansy's like, Yes, yes, I will do this. I will move these rocks, even though that has no purpose. Like, 
Adam has this like natural leader sense here and it's just continuing to come through for all these reasons because he's the most magically connected. You know, we talked about Gansey is kind of unwilling and unable to accept his newfound magical abilities at this point. So like Adam is the one who's like locked and loaded into that. But I love then though that that all comes to and Tasha, you talked about this a little bit already, like with the idea of like his growth dealing with his father. And we've got to talk about the scene where he like is crying and accidentally leads them back to the trailer park because no, (laughs) the the wrong devil. I, in my notes about this scene, that's literally pretty much all I wrote was just wrong devil. Adam freed from reason and turned loose in his own mind, set upon the task of finding a demon had directed them back to the trailer park where his parents still lived. It's, just (laughs) so that's like really upsetting to me but then that's also where we find out what happened with the court case and that robert parish got probation because he's first time offender so he didn't go to jail which but then adam thinks about how like him going to jail was never the purpose and what he really wanted was confirmation that adam had not quote invented it spurred it deserved it (laughs) the fact that he like knows that now like makes me want to cry he just needed that third party unbiased validation that he was he was right and that his dad was a shithead you know because it's easy for your friends to back you up on something like that but yeah when it's there in legal binding paperwork like that that's got to set him free on a whole other level too yeah uh, so i i love i love that moment i love to um, this is like a small moment. I don't know if you guys feel the same way about it, but during the really scary bathroom scene, when he's like in the middle of it, he he pauses and thinks at one point he stood there gasping for air, scared, 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 because what kind of help did he need and who could he ask? The fact that like Adam at that moment is like going through like a really terrifying, awful thing, but is like desperate for help. Like previous Adam, like mm-hmm. never wanted to rely on anyone else and he's so scared in that moment and i think it's obviously it is a very scary moment and i feel like anyone would be asking for help but but that's what he's thinking about like that he doesn't have the help that he's grown to know is okay to like want to ask for and like need from his friends i think is just a really a nice moment there too and then I think too, we have to talk about um, kind of building off of stuff with his dad is his, his interactions with orphan girl here because I just going to melt down about it again, because recognizing the fear in her eyes and it wasn't, it wasn't disdain or boredom. It was fear and like disassociation. Oh, it's, it's so good. And then he just like is so, concerned about her gansey looks at him at one point and thinks like the orphan girl is gonna like flip out at adam but she like doesn't and like it i just love that all so much and i love it like knowing what we know going forward about um adam and ronan like essentially raising opal on the farm it's like he's already stepping into like that parenthood role there and i just i love it a lot It's, it's such a good such a good point a moment his immediate connection to opal is also really pointed i think because he notes when when he first meets opal that she out of all of ronin's dream creatures she was the most like him she was the most ronin out of all of them what a frightened monster she was and then immediately connects to her like immediately super bonds to her so 
Right. I mean, that is him dealing with his Ronan feelings without dealing with his Ronan feelings. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Ronan and then we can talk about Adam Ronan <laughs> feelings. Uh, because I, I think Ronan, too, like Adam in a lot of ways, has already had a lot of his completion of his arc by this point. Uh, he thinks at one point to, um, you know, he's thinking about one of these like dreams that he's had and don't you even know what you are? Ronan didn't exactly, but he thought he was getting better about living with the unfolding mystery of himself. So again, this idea of all of them feeling like they're unknown in some way, Ronan at that point is feeling more solidified that like, it's okay. I'm getting there. Like, I don't need to know everything yet, but I'm, I'm learning more about myself. Can I just say, I'm so happy to be back in Ronan's POV because I missed my boy. Yeah. Maybe that's why I, I, like I said, I've come around on blue, lily, lily, blue, but I feel like maybe that's probably why I like we'll rank it lower because we don't have. Rest. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think we, me too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, I love being back, and there's always just so much juicy stuff with the dreams too, and and there's so much of Ronan that's be- that's beneath the surface. So unless you're in his POV, you don't get any of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but but you do get this time where you get to see from someone else's point of view, uh, Ronan yelling at Orphan Girl to keep her hands in her pocket. And I'm just like, Dad, Ronan, I'm obsessed <laughs> with this. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, like, and that everyone can tell, like, how much he loves Orphan Girl, like, and that she means a lot is just really, really nice. And then I think it's also important. Adam is the one who makes those observations that he sees that he and and Opal know exactly where the boundaries are with each other. Like they Mm. have these well-worn treads of of familiarity and they are their family and they know exactly how hard they can push each other's buttons, how far they can go before they start to kind of automatically back off or start to soothe each other. And it's just Ronan and Opal is... Well, yeah, we we have two moments here where Ronan, without hesitation, puts himself in immediate peril to save Opal. One, when he pulls her out of the dream and the demon is attacking Caveswater. And then two, when he dives into that acid pull to save her. Like, he does not hesitate. And Oh, when he does it, he sees that she didn't expect him or she didn't expect expect anybody to save her. And he thinks, orphan girl, orphan boy. Oh, my God. (laughs) just breaking down here it's yeah god it's so good i also just like to though maybe i don't like it like it's the wrong word there are some things here that make me nervous for the dreamer trilogy friends the dreamers are to be classified as weapons fuck that's being played out that's happening i i don't i don't like that and it makes me very nervous i also like to then, I mean, this comes up more in the book, and this is going to be Tasia's time to like just run with Declan Lynch here. But <laughs> the story of of the hero with the spear, but you know, I I like how Ronan thinks after he has that dream. Dreamers are to be classified as weapons, and Ronan thinks he already knew he was a weapon, but he was trying to make up for it. And mm-hmm. so he's. I don't think that that's necessarily necessarily right but then i like how that plays into the story with the hero and the spear that he doesn't need to be the weapon like he'll he'll be the hero of things um so like that's really good stuff and the stuff with the dreams that he has about like being so concerned about matthew makes me really nervous going into the dreamer trilogy Mm -hmm. i just i don't know man i don't really have any concrete thoughts about it but like we have these scary dreams where like math declan puts a mask on matthew and he's like undone and i just very ominous there's enough here to like 
think that maybe even if it wasn't intentional foreshadowing, shadowing, she could go back and be like, mm-hmm. oh, that's a good that's a good thing to expand on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't like it. I, don't I like just it. want I just need Declan to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> you have all to be okay. <laughs> yes, but Declan first. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I like how listen. Tasha, these are we my feelings. We weren't even talking about Declan in that moment. It was a dream about Matthew being on me. <laughs> but <laughs> like, Declan was there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also love to just circle back to Ronan. We'll get to Declan, but like his thoughts sure. on wanting to be a farmer. Ugh. I'm so mad at Declan, actually. <laughs> They're having this conversation and Ronan's like, I was thinking about being a farmer and we know that he is 100,000% being so earnest. Like that's the most serious thing that he's probably ever said to Declan. And Declan is like, be serious, Ronan. And Ronan's like, because he intentionally says it in a way that is like shitty and sarcastic. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, he knows he's being serious, but he says it in a way so that nobody else would think so because that is a vulnerable admission from Ronan. And he feels embarrassed about it. So he says it in a way so that people will laugh at it or not take it seriously. I feel like I am upset that Declan, as Ronan's brother, should wouldn't have been like, but, wouldn't yes. have been like, all right, Ronan, I hope that's true. You know, like there was a way <laughs> for him to give Ronan a little bit of shit about saying that and maybe say, like, I don't exactly believe you, but like, I want to believe you. But I feel like Declan actually, like, when he says, like, be serious, Ronan, it's mo- it. I think what he said, like, I get what you're saying that like Ronan set it up to not be taken seriously, but Declan for one doesn't take it seriously, but he also acts like that's not a worthwhile dream for Ronan to have. And I'm like, don't be serious, Declan. (laughs) (laughs) And it comes off the heels of him being like, okay, I guess like this is, you want to use the dreaming. It's like make a business out of it. And so he doesn't seem pleased about that. Like, cause that's what their dad did. And so Ronan was like, no, I actually have this other viable alternative. And Declan's like, ha ha ha. (laughs) Because he said, it sounds like a joke. He's like, oh, so you're going to, you're going to do the dreaming thing then or whatever. And he's all, no, I was thinking about being a farmer. Like yeah, it well. sounds like a shitty thing he's just saying to like piss Declan off, which it is a shitty thing he's just saying to piss Declan off. It just so happens to true. also be true. And also, this was still Declan and Ronan at like the oh, most yeah. combative. Oh yeah, like they haven't I, made up yet. This is just the first. Like, is it fair for me to be mad at Declan about this? Maybe not. Yeah. I also will never me. be mad at Declan for anything. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to keep <laughs> talking about Declan right now? Because this is what I wrote for my notes. I'm not even going to write anything down because this is Tasia's moment. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Let's talk about that dream then. And we'll talk about uh pinch stuff in a minute, but like, or the story he tells, because okay, also one of the very best parts of this first half of the book. Yeah. Just the end of it where he says the spear dad told me was him. Declan looked at Ronan. He told me to make sure Ronan was the name of the hero, not the name of just another spear. And it's a great story. It's great for Ronan to hear. And it's something that Ronan does take forward and call down the hawk too. He's very cognizant of like not being a weapon, essentially not being something that's dangerous. He's trying to use his powers, quote unquote, for good. But it's also an example of Niall Lynch, once again, putting the responsibility of raising Ronan and making sure Ronan turns out in quote unquote, the right way on Declan, who was probably 17 at the most when this conversation happened, because I think he was maybe 16, 17 when Niall died. So, or probably 17. 
when Niall died. So he is putting just all of this weight on Declan's shoulders when obviously Declan has already had enough of that. And Ronan even thinks later that once he realizes that, that Declan's been trying to protect him this whole time, like they're having that whole conversation. He's like, why do you think I'm in DC? Why do you think this and this and that? And Dec- and Ronan's thinking to himself, well, I thought like the obvious, but he realizes that was very obviously not correct. So he's learning all of this about Declan. The Declan's known everything this entire time. Declan spent his entire life. Declan's only 19 in this book. That's unreal. Has spent his entire life, not only being basically the parents to both Ronan and Matthew, but also trying to handle this business so that they don't get hurt in any way. And, and Ronan remembers at that point when he was like just a little, little kid dreaming up a fiery sword and Declan being the one to run into his room, which was on fire to save Ronan and pull him and take him to this, to his parents. It wasn't the parents because they weren't really his parents. It was Declan because Declan was really his parent the entire time. Declan, who was only a year older than Ronan. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. I don't I mean, think that I realized. I, I actually don't think that I internalized how young Declan is. And so I started talking to Tasia about these books. Like, I think that while I was reading them the first time we were chit-chatting a little bit through my first read, but we couldn't really get into it because everyone had finished and I was last. So we were waiting for me to be done to like really get into everything. <laughs> and then once I did get to hear Tasia's Declan feelings, I was like, this is a kid. Like in my mind, he's like a college student. He's like an adult. Like, I think it totally did not register for me that like when we first meet Declan, like he also goes to Aglin B. Mm-hmm. Like Th- the suits don't help. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> acting, <laughs> acting like a 45 year old man. Yes. Does not help. <laughs> so it's like Declan's persona uh, worked on me. So <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's a benefit for him. The idea of having this totally different cell phone in his bag so he does not accidentally like mix his real life with his dad's business is just traumatic. In that same chapter, um, in that same chapter too, though, Declan is referred to as Niall's most natural son. I think it's something it says something like that. Which, yes, like when you're reading this book, you're like, oh, he's not, he doesn't have any magical powers, but now knowing what we know from Call Down the Hawk that he is not Aurora's son and like is literally the it's literally of he's two not people. like not a dream mm-hmm. in the person. He's not a dreamer. He's not a dream himself. That line really hits differently. Mm-hmm. It really so. does. And I noticed that too, this read around and I wrote a big thing. I was like, oh my God, most natural son. It's not, it doesn't even necessarily mean the one who isn't magical. It's one who is not born from magic whatsoever, which is just... Mm-hmm. Wild. Crazy. Wild. And also I <laughs> the fact that he he feels somewhat safe dealing with Sunduck because he doesn't have to worry with her when dealing with her. He doesn't have to worry about being stuffed into the trunk of a car while his dad or get, dad gets roughed up. He doesn't have to worry about about uh being handcuffed while the house gets tossed. Like these are all things that, and also getting beaten and left in his dorm in Aglinby, which is a thing that happened, which means that the other things are things that happened. This was, this was Declan's life uh-huh. as a child. And then this gets reiterated when we meet Henry and we find out that this is also Henry's life. Like, mm-hmm. I think that That's a really this, good point. Wow. I think that, that is right. This book feels like um, a lot more 
like plotty to me than the other ones, but it's just because like things need to happen so that the series can end. Like we have just been leisurely chilling for th- not by any means, but you know right. what I mean? Like yeah. these books haven't been ending this whole time and they have to end now. And it kind of feels that way. Um, with the introduction of like a whole bunch of other characters. But the second time through when I was, when I was not feeling frustrated spending time with new people, because I really needed to find out what happened to Gansey, I was able to like, think about all of these new people and their additional context to like this entire world, world that we're building. And I think that that sets us up um, better than anything else for like what goes on in call down the hawk because we like get more into this like the underbelly of like magical antiquities but it's like we have these two kids uh henry and declan who have both grown up this way so it's like yeah this story is about the gangsy but like depending on where you start it this story is also about like these business children of magic people business who children. <laughs> like so i'm just picturing little kids in suits and briefcases that is that is what it is it is kids <laughs> the tiniest briefcases kids being kidnapped and kids being shoved into <laughs> trunks like it's it's an i don't know why everybody gets their kids involved because this is a horrifying business but i do appreciate the the building out of that context in this book much more the second time around also having read called on the hawk and being like wow this magical like underbelly is like crazy and it's like it's not as crazy as you thought it was if you would have paid attention to that last book you read instead of just panicking and like skimming <laughs> skimming the pages for gansy's name <laughs> fuck you're blowing my mind melissa i know i i don't know why because it seems really Sorry obvious now to you. draw that that <laughs> line between henry and declan but now i need them to be best friends because they can go to therapy together yeah and i think that'll be something that they can both benefit oh, greatly from you were nearly beaten to death in your dorm room i was held for ransom and my mother bartered with <laughs> the people holding me ransom huh high five <laughs> Great. They can start. It's like a two-person support group. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> well, and and I, that's a, such a really good way to then to highlight like what's great about Henry. He confronts Gansey and is like, I know it's like Declan. And Gansey's like, pray tell what? <laughs> Declan? <laughs> what are you saying? But like, he, what about that douchebag? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, right. But like, that's a really good point too, actually, that that's like a moment of reckoning for Gansey that he has to have with Declan. But Henry in that moment then being like, I know something about this. Like, and I'm not, I'm coming to you now because shit's happening and I've been around this. And that's, I feel so I locked into, to Henry now. I I love that. Damn. Yeah. Because Henry actually doesn't a hundred percent track for me. I um, tried really, really hard the second time to like get more on a wavelength with him. I think that the back half of this book is like much better for Henry. Um, I think that that's like the final iteration of like his character and his place in the gangsy. Like I love Henry, but I don't like Henry's. I don't like, I don't know. I don't like a lot of stuff about like how Henry's introduced. And I hate that he calls blue Gansey's child bride. Like multiple times he says this and I just don't, love it um but i mean we already talked about i love the scene at blue school and i love not to like get into the second half of the book because you guys will do that uh without me unfortunately but when after (laughs) after gansy dies henry's like we're all going to wherever we're going like he gets so stuck and i love 
I love that little piece of his character where he's like, I threw myself into this gangsy. I don't exactly understand the nuances of everything that's gone down here. And I was just like completely shook at the, the end game of this because I have not been involved in the lead up. And I really thought that we were all just going to be like traveling together. Yeah. And I, like help please. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, he's, he's like us at that point. Like, I really thought this was going to work out and like, why? Is that I really out? just like, don't understand why we're not packing for a road trip right now. Yeah. <laughs> like somebody explains me what happened in the middle here. And Henry's like, been reading the books and he's like, wait, happy ending. Like what's <laughs> yeah, what? yeah. supposed to happen? But that, well, we didn't really talk a ton about the scene with him and, and Gansey and the whole, but I guess we could talk about that now because I have like a lot of mixed feelings on it. And the one hand, I love it. Like if you are, if you can't be unafraid, be afraid and happy. I love that messaging. Like that's great. I like that he pegs Gansey so well at that point. But like at the same time, I'm like, jealous on behalf of everyone else for Gansey to be like I felt doubly known triply known like he and Henry weren't twins but like this is the most like known he's ever felt I was like wait like what about all these other people that I just spent all this time loving you all as a collective and loving their love for you and now all of a sudden you're gonna love someone else like how all dare. of that and I feel like this going into this dark hole and then not telling him what Robobie is but like showing him is like pretty fucking dark it's a real it's a real throw you in the deep end moment like give a give a guy some warning also i'm actually really curious about because this is the first time i read through this book that i thought this might be the case but that moment where it's on raven day and gansey he feels like that the large insect buzzing around Mm -hmm. him and it triggers a massive panic attack one where henry kind of pulls him out of and he gives him that glass of cold water and my question is, did Henry accidentally trigger that panic attack with Robo B? Because Henry is I'm the one who notices and comes up with the glass of water like like maybe one minute into that. Oh shit, I broke attack. him. Yeah, he's like, Oh no, I was just checking to see what was going on. <laughs> like I, I did something bad, and then he comes up with the water. I like that idea, although I do think like Gansy's already like spiraling. Like at that point, yeah. like he's already, he's already right, but the B is the that. trigger, like the, the buzzing right, insect right. is the one is the thing that sends right. him over that edge right. for me to appreciate and understand and accept Henry. I have to think that he recognized Gansey having a panic attack because they have this connection and they're friends, not because like he accidentally mm-hmm. did it like, because they both have that, fear. Right. Because that's how I need to con- to bring them together as friends in the way that Maggie seems to want me to think that they're. But I just think BFFs. that just because you had to have yeah. been paying very close attention to Gansey to notice what was going on. Like he had to have already been watching him. Robo B is like reporting back. Um, my bad. He's yeah. freaking out. <laughs> We're going to need to do something. He's very interesting. And I guess that kind of makes me, f- I don't know if anything's going to make me feel like putting Gansey in this hole with the bee was a great move. I understand that it's like very dramatic and Henry is very dramatic and I like that. But like, I guess because he like sees Gansey's fear and he's like, he doesn't know that I have this fear. I need to like show him this like same, same but different thing that we share. I'm just like, you don't. This is like, this is crazy over the top, Henry. But I guess that's that's Henry. So I think I'll just be forgiving yeah. of it. But this is still at the point in the book where I'm like, I don't know if your character, sir, tracks 100% for me. But that's not your fault, Henry. I still right. like like you. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
I also feel like I just, we like need to mention though, and this could be like a me thing as a reader, but we kind of talked about this before when we talked about like, like fangirl and carry on when we were talking about rainbow Rowell and like kind of like briefly addressed Eleanor and park, but I, I don't love another like white woman author writing like a Korean character speaking about the fact that they're Korean. Like mm-hmm. it just makes me like, I don't know that I, I can't speak to it. I'm not in a position to speak as to whether or not any of it is, is offensive, but I just have to like side eye it a little bit and like squint at it and be like, mm, is this good? I don't know that I, <laughs> I think that it is good uh, for him to be like saying some of the things that he's saying coming from Macy Butters voice so i think that's like yeah. something mm-hmm. that also makes me like feel a little squeamish about henry but that's not his fault but so i do like a lot of the moments the car scene with blue just will forever endear me to him so that's great but and this is something that's for the next the next half of the book but it's right. the the boxer shorts and the madonna shirt for me <laughs> it's a great moment the toka <laughs> party sounds fun i want to go to the toka party i would like to hang out with all those those boys too and I, I like that the connection he has with blue too and just this idea of like they all want something where they're all kind of stargazers like i like yeah. that it's nice. and i do like and you know obviously coming from a white woman that's probably like it's it's a different thing but i do like that at that party they think they talk about how I, 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 they can be different people when they're on their own in their own house but at Aglenby they feel like they have to be so much more buttoned up and so much and they have to keep themselves quiet and they can't push boundaries really because yeah. they are just that tiny bit of diversity in Aglenby. Mm-hmm. But when they're on their own, they can be, cause I feel like that, that is an authentic experience yeah. and coming from right. a white woman, maybe she's not the one to be talking about that experience, which is, I totally agree. Right. But I do like that. That was brought up. Yeah. Yeah. So that they all seem like good eggs over there at Litchfield house. In like yeah. a very um, silly Henry thing. Um, I really feel a kinship with him because he is afraid of his own car and <laughs> I moved to Chicago. So I did not have to drive cars anymore because I too am afraid of driving cars. So me and Henry, <laughs> I think my favorite, my favorite, um, like Tumblr text post about the Raven cycle was something like, like writing is about showing and not telling, like, instead of saying, Henry Chang is a bottom. Maggie put him in a Madonna shirt and made him afraid of his own car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just, oh my God. It's so fucking funny. I love it. Oh my God. That's great. <laughs> I don't like this segue, but he kind of set it up to talk about it. <laughs> oh man. Um, so let's talk about Pinch because. We we're cooking with gas here now. Those feelings they're coming out, friends. The, our group chat was blowing up the other day, just talking about this. I have no chill about it. Catch me transcribing this entire fucking book into our <laughs> into our DM. So, oh, fuck. Okay, where do we want to even start? The 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 caves water with the yeah. the drum. <sighs> That's a moment. Okay, so yes, that is like the best flirting in these whole books. I, I think I can say it. We can say that, right? Where Adam changes the music that Caves Water singing turns into EDM music for Ronan. Yes, that it's is. Just a, it's I'm like completely losing it over here, but it's it wasn't me. Ronan said he looked to Blue, who shrugged. He caught Adam's eye when Adam's mouth quirked. Ronan's expression stilled for a moment before turning to the loose smile he ordinarily reserved for Matthew Salinas. 
Adam felt a surge of both accomplishment and nerves. He skated an edge here, making Rona Lynch smile felt as charged as making a bargain with Cape's water. These weren't forces to play with. This is my legitimate, <laughs> actual, written down on paper, favorite swoon moment yeah. of these chapters. And I copied and pasted them directly from my read notes into the episode <laughs> notes. And they are as follows in all capital letters. Adam adds intention to Caveswater, and it is the bass notes of the EDM music that only Ronan likes. And Ronan gives Adam his Matthew smile, and Adam is thrilled and nervous, and so am I. <laughs> thrilled yeah. and nervous is a great way to describe it. Like, I have caps lock on. I am freaking the fuck out. Like, there's nothing better than someone putting up. <laughs> if you guys have seen my Twitter, you will know this reference. There's nothing more thrilling to me than someone at least pretends like they are interested in your weird niche music choices. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that Adam does this and like is so sly about it. And like, I just, I can't deal with it. It's so good. But then like this like blows me away later than two where he's crying and they're driving in the car and he thinks electronic music bled into his awareness, reminding him that his body was actually in Ronan's car. In this other place, it was easy to tell that the music was the sound of Ronan's soul. Hungry and prayerful, it whispered of dark places, old places, fire and sex. Jesus fucking Christ. So I I love EDM music and I feel like this description is like accurate when you're like really vibing with like an electronic song um but also like Adam thinking like Adam having these thoughts like while he's distracted scrying like get it together this is danger it is (laughs) also while he's while he's scrying he's also reliving that moment where he and where Ronan helped him up and they they touched Ugh. wrists or something for a minute. And and how like in that moment, Ronan was losing his shit. And then you you get it from Adam's POV. And Adam was also losing his shit in that moment. And I'm losing just, my we're, shit. We're all losing our shit. And, and just Adam flirting throughout this whole book. And then immediately becoming like almost feeling guilty about it. Like, is this right? Is this, am I doing something bad? Because he doesn't know really how he feels yet. But he knows one thing that he really enjoys the flirting and he keeps doing it. He so keeps doing it. There's he, that. He Adam literally Parrish. played sex music for Ronan in Caves Water with yeah. all their friends there is what that full circle means. I mean, unreal. <laughs> it's so good. The don't play. He told himself this is not a game, but it didn't feel like a game. If he was being honest, adrenaline whispered in his heart. Um, I also, it's, it's too much. I also like to, though, the, that quote you read earlier, which is, you just read the continuation of this, like, comparison of, like, smiles and what they would each do for each other's smiles. Oh, so, God. Like, so, like, you know, the unshielded smile that uh, Ronan gave him in Caves Water. Then Ronan thinks later, Adam smiled cheerily. Ronan would start Wars and Born Cities for that true smile, elastic and amiable. Get real. <laughs> get you get you a love like Ronan Lynch. Like that when man I read that destroy line cities about you. well, actually, so I think that that I guess they they're just in this order in my notes, and I can't exactly remember like the order that these the exact order of these quotes, but um after that, Ronan would start Wars and Bird Cities for Adam Smile line. Like, just I have it highlighted in my book, and the note says in all caps, oh swoon, Ronan. But in my notes, that is directly after this line at school when Adam is like, or uh when Ronan's like, What are you doing after school? Like, are you working after school? And Adam's like with a dreamer. And I'm like, oh swoon, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> like, have mercy on all of us, please. Yeah. It's I also think there's a nice parallel Um, back in probably book two, I would assume Adam thinks about blue, about his attraction to blue. 
he was attracted to her like a heart attack. And then here, when he's talking about when he first met Ronan and he didn't know why Gansey and, and Ronan were friends because uh, Ronan was a, a, a heart attack that never stopped. So when, when Adam's got feelings, it's like he's having a heart attack. And so it's, he, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's too much. It's too much. Did we read the line too about, uh, he allowed Ronan to study the palm of his hand. The latter was not strictly necessary and they both knew it, but Adam watched Ronan closely as he lately traced the lines there. Get the fuck out. And this all timer, Adam lived in an apartment located above the office of St. Agnes. <laughs> <laughs> i'm like is she waving me down to stop I don't- i'm just flailing okay flailing. adam lived in an apartment located above the office of st agnes catholic church a fortuitous combination that focused most of the objects of ronan's worship into one downtown block too much too much what a fucking line especially after one time in that church adam thought that ronan might be a god they are obsessed with each other like they're so obsessed and these like the horn is turned up here friends the horn is like at max level however what i love then too though is we also get just more really great moments of like deeper understanding with each other so it's not just the horn the horn is great and i love that um but like when after they go to the trailer park ronan like adam turns to ronan and says I want to go get Orphan Girl. Ronan finally looked at him. Adam expected to see gasoline and gravel in his eyes, but he wore an expression Adam wasn't sure he had seen on his face before. Something thoughtful and appraising. A more deliberate, sophisticated version of Ronan. Ronan growing up. It made Adam feel he didn't know. He didn't have enough information to know how he felt. Oh, we do. Let's go pick up your baby. (laughs) Let's go pick up your baby. Like, I want to get her. I miss our baby. Let's go get her. Like, so I like (laughs) love that. And then, like, Adam figuring out that Ronan dreamt caves water is just is just great. And like he thinks about it and he's yeah, he's like taking a moment to process about it. But he also thinks too like about how like no wonder Ronan had been choked by his egg uniform, like more of what oh, he talked I about. Love that in, whole line. That whole passage is gorgeous where he's like, of course, like what? Like it's a fool's errand to try to like force for half a dreamer, half a dream, maker of ravens and hoofed girls in entire lands. No wonder his agonable uniform had choked him. No wonder his father had sworn him to secrecy. No wonder he could not make himself focus on classes. Adam had realized this before, but now he realized it again more fully larger. The ridiculousness of Ronan Lynch in a classroom for aspiring politicians. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. I just. When Ronan goes to, I think it's on his birthday when he goes to school for the first time in however long, and it's in that scene with the the smiles and the with the dreamer, and there's this little line that I don't know if I'd ever really noticed before, but Ronan is thinking about how suffocating school is, and he thinks the only oxygen to be found was the pale band of skin on Adam's wrist where his watch had been, and the glimpse of the sky between classes. His only oxygen is the tiny oh bit of God. skin that he's on his <laughs> wrist. His it wrist. Is, oh this is in canon. <laughs> How well fed are we? Dear God. Like, <laughs> we are dear, bursting at the seams. Dear God. Um, I also then like to, though, this is a callback to like um, the earlier books, or particularly, I think, in The Dream Thieves, where this like all this 
memories of Niall and like when he said Ronan, he met XYZ and we get a little like mirror of that here where Declan shows up and uh, he says Ronan, it means one thing. Gansey says Ronan, it means like, is this okay? Like, should I, what should I do? But when Adam says Ronan, he meant Ronan and I love that so much. <laughs> That's so good. And then I like this too, just add, or we've talked about Ronan's like, never any uh, like anxiety that he's having in this book about like what this like demon thing is going to mean for his brother. But then he also thinks to, you know, the memory of Adam bargaining part of himself away was too frequent a visitor in his nightmares already. Mm-hmm. I like love that. And especially the callback to the mask dream in the dream thieves, which I kind of thought was like a symbol of Adam just having made this bargain. This all just like comes together in such a juicy way. Damn, guys, there's it's, it's a good ship. <laughs> it's a really good ship. It's exactly like you said. We are so well fed. So good. Well, by both ships here, too. But like, I don't know. You you can't you don't pick your your OTP. The OTP p- picks you. And this is just where I am. And I just these mm-hmm. moments are going to just really launch me into the stratosphere here in terms of like my excitement and feelings because I just really adore them. Oh boy. Um, what other things do we need to talk about here before we, we wrap up friends? Uh, the blue and Ronin stuff. Yes. Yes. Let's talk about blue and Ronin now too, because I just feel like I love every iteration of it's just like Ronin with everyone is like my favorite part of (laughs) this book. The blue and Ronin stuff here is, is so great. When she gets suspended from school and he is just so proud of her, just delighted and he says, get the fuck out, Rona said, but with admiration. Sergeant, you asshole. Blue reluctantly allowed him to bump fist with her as Gansey eyed her meaningfully in the rearview mirror. And then when she tells him what, what she did, and she said, or he asked her why she got suspended. And she said, emptying another student's backpack over his car. I don't really want to talk about it. I do, Ronan said. Well, I don't. I'm not proud of it. Ronan patted her leg. I'll be proud for you. That's so good. It's just, <laughs> I love them so much. And also the way Ronan too. just like flawlessly ratchets down. Like he, he relieves the tension out of these really fraught moments. Like when she is in the hospital and she's got her face all fucked up and, and he says, Jesus, God, Sergeant, do you have stitches on your face? Badass, put it mm-hmm. here, you asshole. And with some relief, blue lifted her fist and bumped it against his, like he knows exactly how to diffuse the tension from the moment. And, and to like all blue wants right there is to not be the subject of like pity or to feel weird and she just wants to feel normal like everything's fine and he does that for her yeah and then it like sets up too nicely then like adam and gansey fist bump like okay we've we've diffused the situation we're like moving Mm -hmm. on yeah it's erroneous again diffusing that situation because gansey takes blue's hand and it could be an awkward moment but ronan just goes gross you know in exactly the most immature possible way and makes everybody feel more relaxed one thing I do like, and I give credit to Adam for that we didn't talk about before, but I'm just going to circle back to it, is when in that scene where he says, like, I'm happy you finally told us, like, he doesn't, like, make it about, like, just him in that moment in terms of, like, you need to protect my feelings. It's more just, like, we are a collective now, and, like, it's very important for us to move together, move together. and Ronan's included in that. Mm-hmm. We don't get a lot of, like, internal rumination from Ronan on a lot of this stuff, but he's just, like, out in the dark. Like, I have the imagery of, like, the cow balloon thing from Call Them the Hawk, but that's, like, Ronan just kind of, like, circling <laughs> around all of them. Like, 
oh, like, he's not oblivious, but like, I don't think he's thinking about Fungenzi in that same way. And he's no. not, he's not aware of like the really troubling fact that Gansey's meant to die soon. Like he doesn't know that yet either. So like, Roman is just like in his little bubble. I feel like at this. Point. Although he's, I like, feel like he busy. might at least be relieved that Adam does not care about the Gansey thing. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good point. Although I mean, he gave you sex music, uh, Ronan. Like <laughs> cats out of the bag. Um, oh, you know, I know what we need to talk about. We can talk about Noah. Yeah, we need to talk about Raven Day. Oh. I am so sad. I Blue, I think that when I first read these books, I thought that, I think I just assumed that a lot of Blue's, like, anger and, like, vitriol for the Raven Boys was that, like, there was not, like, a special fancy school for, like, her to go to and be, like, better than everyone else in Henrietta. Um, and that might be kind of like an unfavorable read for Blue, but that's okay. Um, I was just like really, really saddened by the fact that like there's so much that Blue doesn't get to be involved in because she doesn't go to Aglenby, like knowing the gangsy before they go to Nino's and like, you know, whatever. But also that she does not get to be at Raven Day because I really think that if anybody was going to fully appreciate what it meant for this to be something that was like, they're like living in one of Ronan or one of Noah's dreams for once and like Blue doesn't get to be there and they all do. It just like hurts me deeply. It's like the court scene. Like I love the court scene so much, but it also bums me out that she's not there for that Mm -hmm. either because it's such a big moment for Adam and for the group. Right. And she is such an integral part too. Like when Adam sees how like injured she is too, like he like feels it like in his stomach and he's like, that's how I know I care about her because I'm like so horrified by this. So yeah, it is very sad that she's like not in these really big moments, but I agree like her and Noah have this really special bond, like and Mora points this out to Kala when like Cal is like he's like being like a coward or something she's like not cowards being afraid he's like a kid or sort of and he's also one of blue's best friends like mm-hmm. it's just, like so they're really like diving into that but i i don't even know how much i can talk about it without just getting so upset but like him being infiltrated by this demon blue saying like that she sees this like crime happening in front of her because like she knows it's not noah him fighting the demon to try to get Gansy and blue out like while he's just like totally freaking out it just makes me really i have a lot of sad feelings about it and then we get that on top of it we get this glimpse of who noah is at raven day from his uh sister and that comes on the heels of noah being his most noah-like when he's out by the tree with blue and Gwynplian and they're like double mirror magicking him and mm-hmm. so he's he's just like so hyper and he's over the top and we'll get this chicken truck and we'll call it this and blah 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 and like it's sad because blue thinks that she doesn't think she would ever be friends with that Noah but like still loves this version of Noah that she has one of you have written down the, the beautiful the quote, quote yeah the quote there is so beautiful it's um Blue didn't care that he, it, Noah was strange and decaying and frightening. She knew that he, it, Noah was strange and decayed and frightened. And she knew that she loved him anyway. So good. So good. So all of this too, I guess this is a good way to maybe actually talk about the plot of what's happening in this book, which is that we have this demon circling. <laughs> <We have a> plot? <laughs> like two hours and we're talking about the plot. 
<laughs> but we have a demon. I think it's so well done. It's so scary. It's infiltrating on every level. It's it's attacking Adam. It's attacking Noah. It's attacking Cave's Water. And it's all fucking Piper's fault. And she then I love the tie-in with her being the child of how do we say Lemonier? Lemonier? Lemonier. Yeah. And that tie-in, it's just like building up really well. We get more of that in the second half. But the tie-in then of like these were Niall's big buyers, Henry's mom. We don't know it's his mom yet, but um, Song Chuck is is his mom, and then Green Mantle and Lemonier are who are his three big buyers, and they're all like circling, and it's just really building the tension really well. Uh, on top of the Gansey tension, we don't know how that ties in yet. I, I just think it it is really really well done, and then all these other things are happening. <laughs> it's just what a time, what a time. Any other big things we need to talk about? I just wanted to highlight um, one of my favorite quotes in this book that just comes from Green Mantle from before he's killed. He's walking around his house feeling sorry for himself in a pair of boxers and like a suit jacket drinking wine out of the bottle. And it goes, Green Mantle took a swig of the wine directly from the bottle. When he'd selected it from the kitchen, he had thought it would look more aesthetically pathetic and desperate than carrying a solitary glass, and it did. He wished there was someone here to see just how aesthetically pathetic and desperate he looked. He's just I love <laughs> such it. a mood. It is such a mood. I love it. I've written one of one of my favorite quotes. I love it too. And then, like, yeah, he does. Oh, he dies. It's another thing that happens to this book, listeners. For, I was. about that. Murdered. Murdered by his wife. Yeah. And Wass. And Wass. Yeah. Who else yeah. do we know Again. that has been murdered Again. by well, Wass? <laughs> well, and we didn't talk about how the fact that the demon looks like wasp. wasp is wasp yeah so yeah again minor details then. i have in my notes somewhere written down like piper and the and then all of these words are in capitals big demon wasp <laughs> <laughs> very scary i don't I like him. also wondering about the significance of 621 like it is repeated several times yeah. um throughout up until the point where Colin Greenmantle gets murdered so he dies and before then it's 621 and then after he's dead it finally says it's 622. So was yeah. his death what we were counting down to 621 for? Or it reminds me of the clock like stutters after Gansey dies. And like it's obviously not this, it's not, it's not gonna be like a parallel occurrence because, but I just wonder if like maybe because obviously Piper used the the unmaker, the demon to kill Colin. I wonder if when the demon is like really going through it, time stutters. <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, like so much is happening right at that moment. That's when it did take a lot of energy. Yeah. So that's good. I like that's that. Read. That's a very good point. Yeah. That's like all very scary and ominous. So much is happening right at that time. The whole book is scary and ominous. Faux show. Yeah. Obviously we know the wise come for Colin, but it's like later Henry, who we don't have no idea knows anything like about this. He's like, Colin Greenmantle's dead. And everybody's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, I do like to see him Greenmantle when Ronan and Declan have their big like heart heart finally. And Declan's telling him everything. And Ronan says that it was him and Adam that sends sent to get Greenmantle out of town. And Declan says like, oh, his new parish was a creepy little fuck. <laughs> Yeah, a creepily clever little fuck. There you go. Thank you. I think in my so, notes, I put Declan, stop seducing me. I don't know what's <laughs> wrong with me. I'm very sorry. It's just, it is what it is. 
<laughs> oh, I love it. It reminds me of once I did read a fanfic where Adam dated Declan first and I felt uncomfortable by it, but it like kind of worked on a lot of levels because there I read is, that one like, too. Yeah, there's some similarities. <laughs> it's that shine a light on me, I think, wrote it. And it shouldn't mm-hmm. work, but it does. He ends up with Rona and it's fine. I just have one more thing I want to on. Um, Artemis lives in the pantry and that shit is so endlessly funny to me. Like it just cr- it cracks me up to think about yeah. just like grown man tree, but we don't know he's a tree yet. So we're like, why are you trying to be in the pantry? Like <laughs> the chaos that is Foxway after Blue Lily, Lily Blue is just like, I love it. I like that tarot scene so much because it's just like Artemis just chilling there. Gwentlian's being Gwentlian like it's such a chaotic mess, but I do like the one moment of clarity is like they're trying to figure out what they can do and they can help these guys. And Artemis just says, Caveswater loves them. And someone says, oh, you care to elaborate? It's like, no, nah, not, but not he's right. Little, not even he's right. He's right. Yeah, I do. I love that because even Blue brings it up and she's like, or because Maura is trying to make excuses for Artemis. And she's like, he's had a really hard few decades. And Blue's like, Gwentlian's been in a fucking coffin for you know, several hundred years. She's had it pretty rough and at least she's out, you know, being weird out on the counter. Yeah. Good point, you know? Yeah. Uh, should we talk about some favorite quotes now? Yeah, let's do it. I have a lot. This is my all-time favorite quote from this book, which is when we already read about Adam living in an apartment above. Mm-hmm. The Office of St. Agnes's Catholic Church, a fortuitous combination that focused most of the objects of Ronan's worship into one downtown block. I mean, just... You know my thoughts. I've talked about my feelings on my Catholic upbringing and how that makes me love Ronan and that he equates Adam in that way. It just means a lot to me. I have the whole quote here of the the carnal knowledge, which is just really funny. She just wanted to keep being best friends with Gansey forever and maybe one day also have carnal knowledge of him. This seemed like a very sensible desire. And Blue, as someone who had sought to be sensible her entire life, was feeling pretty damn put out that this small thing was being denied her. Truth. I'm also put out for you, Blue Surgeon. I also like this funny moment, too, from Calla, where she is when they bring Demon Noah home and she first like touches Mora and to get like what happened from Mora. And she sees like <laughs> she sees Mr. Mora Gray is talented. Yeah, Mr. Gray is talented. But then she like holds Noah's hand and it's such a sweet moment because she she gets all these like thoughts like Ronan being kinder through Noah's eyes and um how he's kind of a scare scared of Adam but also scared for Adam and his like jealousy of of Gansey. But then she she also sees kissing there and just says, How did Cal's day end up involving so many sergeants with so many tongues in their mouths? That's so good. And also I like get really like weak for Noah thinking that like Gansey is so solid Ugh. Yeah. because Gansey is just a little anxiety boy in this book, but Noah still just like loves him and thinks that he's just like solid as a rock. And I, I just am obsessed. Okay. Noah standing by the pool too, when Gansey's swimming and Gansey doesn't see it. I can't. And isn't Gansey like, naked? I don't, I don't. I'm just, Noah's just like, <laughs> obsessed with Gansey's, still like real body. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Melissa, how about you? What are your favorite quotes? Okay, so one of my favorite quotes is um, I believe this is also Callis. She says, or maybe it's Orla, I can't remember. But anyway, it's about like our Morris taste in men. And she's like, but then lanky men who appeared out of mystical groves had never been her type. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> unrelatable. <laughs> 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 
Um, and then this line about they were all growing up and into each other, like trees growing up towards the sun. I forgot that that was in this book when I said that thing about Adam and Ronan being trees in the DM. And then when I got to this line in the book, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, yeah. Melissa had a great realization once, listeners, about like we were talking about ships and if like something ever happened to them and like if we could survive the characters being broken up. And Melissa said that no. Adam and Ronan like that could not happen to them because they like grew like a tree together and grew up together and they cannot be separated. They cannot be separated. It, <sighs> ugh, well, if you know, if they did it, I think it would be something bad. So we do not speak its name. So yeah. no, no. I touched on this stuff a little bit. We talked about blue, but this is one of my favorite lines. Uh, she says it had been a lot more straightforward when she assumed she could despise them all from the thin air of the moral high ground. And I'm like, blue, please stop attacking me. But also. I love her like realizations that she maybe shouldn't do this. None of us should do this, but I like the moral high ground. So, <laughs> so much good self reflection for her here. Quite a mood. Yeah. It's so good. Tasia. All right. So I have he was a king. This is the year he was going to die. It's an all timer. Yeah. Um, and then I think this is Calla. Blue, your boys are out front looking like they're fixing to bury a body again, Blue thought. <laughs> and then this one's from Callan. I, I love this one so much. It might probably will eventually be a tattoo. I get trees in your eyes. Kala added more gently than usual stars in your heart. Beautiful. And another one. Fine. Kala hissed. We won't free any ghosts while she's at a toga party. And I just love that. It just, it's, it highlights the absurdity of their, their lives. Yeah. It's just yeah, so good. It really does. And then the no point hooligans got in anyway. The hooligan in question smiled thinly. Just more just top tier flirting from Adam Parrish. It's so good. Flirt with me, Adam. Like in, <laughs> in, in a world that like Ronan doesn't exist because like obviously your trees grown together. I will not separate you. I feel like Adam and Ronan are going to have a very stable relationship in which if Adam wants to flirt with people just for funsies because he's super good at it, he can. Yeah, I don't think he can turn it off. Like yeah, Ronan is also the type to just, just probably existing. sit back and be like, that's "Yeah, he can flirt with you, but that's that's he mine. coming home it's with hot. me." Yeah, <sighs> look at my boy just out here destroying lives. <laughs> <laughs> um, so proud. None of us, I see, wrote down anything favorite character, but off the cuff here, we're not doing arcs because it's only the first half of the book. But like, Melissa, who's your favorite character in these chapters? Um, well, I. Picking favorites is like so deeply hard I for know. me. Um, but I am gonna think I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. This is based on arc, also, just because I already talked a lot about how I'm like very into like Gansey's, um, like unmaking in the preparation of his remaking that happens in the back half of this book. So that's what I'm gonna pick. Okay, that's good. Tasia, I will go with Adam for God tier flirting. Yeah, that's pretty great. Um, I have a hard time with this. I, I like I said, I'm feeling like a lot of blue feelings, so I'm gonna maybe go with her. But um, I, I like to pick a side character sometimes, and let's give it up for Jimmy. Get some great moments from her in this book, and she gives like a good full body hug, and like she does. I, could use one. I would like a <laughs> hug from. Jimmy. Also, and apparently at one point she punched Calla, which uh, took some balls. Amazing yeah, for you, yeah. Jimmy. So, yeah, Jimmy. 
All right, favorite swoon. <laughs> what? First of all, rewind back to when we talked about all the pinch stuff. Yeah, what sad. have we not talked about? <laughs> well, yeah. we have some quotes here. Change. I'll just let you read the quotes. I mean, mine is the, probably the EDM thing, just because it's the thing on this read that I was mine like, too. oh, I like forgot yeah. about how fucking hot that is. That's so, so good. Anyway, so mine is a. It's possibly one of my favorite quotes of all time. It is just fucking stand out. His feelings for Adam were an oil spill. He let them overflow, and now there wasn't a damn place in the ocean that wouldn't catch fire if he dropped a match. Just the most, <laughs> the most absurdly romantic thing I've ever read in my life. And I then like later, when when Adam touches him, his hand or something, and Ronan thinks the ocean burned. Just, oh my god! Wow! <laughs> Unreal. And then also, but read. This. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and then there's the the encounter between Blue and Gansey at the Togo party. It was this, laughing senselessly into each other's skin, playing until it was abruptly no longer play, and Gansey stopped himself with his mouth perilously close to hers, and Blue stopped herself with her belly pressed close to his. It was this, Gansey saying, I like you an awful lot, Blue Sergeant. It was this, Blue smile, crooked, wry, ridiculous, flustered. There was a lot of happiness tucked into the corner of that smile, and even though her face was several inches from Gansey, some of it still spilled out and got on him. She put her finger on his cheek where he knew his own smile was dimpling it, and then they took each other's hands and they climbed back up together. Love it. Also, I like the spilling metaphor. Like uh, everyone's yeah. feelings are so, so much and so, uh, so they're, they're like overflowing. It's it's great. God. <sighs> Again, well fed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, your ships here. They're 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 great. I oh, God, this book is good. <laughs> this book is good, guys. <laughs> I love it a lot. And there's just more to come. Melissa did note in the notes, how dare we cut this off right before this. (laughs) (laughs) Apologies. Apologies on that note. (laughs) Next week, we are covering chapters 33 to the end. Melissa, do you have any little thoughts you'd like to just throw in? (laughs) I mean, beyond the obvious. I keep dropping my phone. I'm so sorry. Um, But beyond the obvious, no. (laughs) I just... When I, because I read the whole book before we recorded, and I was almost done with it when you guys told me what chapter we were going to cut off at. And in my mind, I was like, I think I'm going to get to talk about this kiss. Like, I really think it's going to happen for me. I don't know what the chapter is going to be yet, but it looks like it's past, you know, it's within the first half. This is going to be fine. And then you're like, chapter 32. And I was like, they are so mean. I like, I don't think it was even that intentional, but <laughs> I think the logic behind it was we wanted to kick off the part two, like really yeah. strong. And so that just seemed like yeah. a logical part, but it was, it was pretty mean. I'm sorry. sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> really that's goes to it. show that next week is also going to be unhinged friends. So just, if we're starting with that, it's, it's going to be good stuff. Um, before we go, my cheeks are hot. <laughs> this is maybe, I'm, and I don't say this slightly, this is maybe our most unhinged episode. Yeah. <laughs> We've been on Hinge before, but this is great. Just Many times. But. Love the chaos here. And here's what's going to happen too, Melissa. Hopefully we've talked about this for you. You'll come back with us. Like maybe you come back for our, um, anyway, and that, well, we did say that anyway, the wind blows episode. We don't need to have you back after coming on for carry on and we were son, but then also maybe Mr. Impossible. Cause like we need like collective pinch trash, like together Not for that. this up so um muscle will be back for sure in the future for at least one of those and (laughs) uh but before we go though to most i would tell us where find you on socials your pods on socials etc 
Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, which is M-E-L-L-O-O Yellow. Or you can find um, the Wild Pretty Things podcast on Twitter at Wild Pretty Pod and the Still Great Bob podcast at Still Great Pod. Excellent. Tasha, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ragey Cakes. You can find me on Instagram at Rin underscore Reads. You can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at ActyH. And you could shoot us an email if you'd like at about anything, really, at ActyHpod at gmail.com. You could also, if you wouldn't mind doing so, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you podcast. It would be very helpful to us. Otherwise, we'll see you back here next week for... The end of the Raven King, chapters 33 to the end. I'm very, very sad that we are barreling down the back half of this this big project here, but it's a good conclusion, and we're really excited to talk about it. Uh, but until then, thanks again, Melissa. We love having oh, you thank here. Thank you so much for having yeah. me and for catapulting me back into the Raven cycle where I have spent the last two months. Yeah, it's Just a great place to be. Abusing the DMs. <laughs> <laughs> Never an abuse. We love it so much. And I, mean, I can talk about this forever. So despite the fact that we just recorded for two hours about it. So it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's good. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.